1977, an archaeologist named Manolis Andronikos managed to penetrate a great earthen mound in the small town of Vergina in northern Greece. Vergina, long ago, had been the capital of the Kingdom of Macedon, back then known as Agiae. Andronikos was a dreamer, and had long believed that the great kings of Macedon's ancient past were interred in the great earthen barrows in that region. In particular, Andronikos believed that one hill was the royal tomb of Philip II of Macedon. What they unearthed was a vast network of burial sites, untouched by grave robbers and intact after 2,000 years. Inside that, they found a number of bodies, including a man with distinctive cranial injury, a young boy, and a woman. Lo and behold, Andronikos was right. He had unearthed the body of Philip II, and possibly that of Alexander IV and his mother Roxanne. It was one of the greatest finds of the 20th century, but it had also refueled the fire of one of the greatest archaeological mysteries of all time. Where was the body of Alexander the Great? Now, the tombs and bodies of great figures being hidden or lost over the centuries is not an uncommon idea. We have stories of conquerors like Genghis Khan or Temujin of the Mongol Empire and Attila the Hun being interred into secret spots and where everyone involved is killed and the land is trampled over lest anyone try to sack the tomb's treasures. Famously, the Egyptian pharaohs were also fond of embalming the dead and sealing away in elaborate tombs. But Alexander was different. We have testimonies across the centuries of famous figures visiting the great king's tomb and viewing his body, until it vanishes from the record. How could the corpse of the most famous conqueror in history disappear, considering that it was such high profile in the ancient world? Perhaps it would be best to trace the story back from the beginning. On June 10th, 323 BC, Alexander had died in the city of Babylon. In the immediate chaos following, one of the big contentious issues that was being debated was where the Basileus was to be interred. There were three main contenders for the location. Number one was Babylon itself, where the center of Alexander's power was while reigning over his empire. The second was also the tomb of Agia in Macedon, where the Macedonian kings were traditionally buried, and that is where Alexander's father, Philip, and his son, Alexander IV, were placed. But according to Alexander's last wishes, it is said that he wanted to be buried at the temple of Zeus Ammon, located at the Siwa Oasis in Egypt. It was there he had his revelation of his alleged godhood, and perhaps he wanted to be buried closer to his father, Zeus. One may wonder why the final resting place was so violently fought over, but it takes a bit of context to get the idea. For starters, it was traditionally part of a newly appointed Macedonian king's job to personally bury his predecessors, acting as a way to curry divine favor and legitimize himself in the eyes of his people. The one who was able to deliver Alexander to his final resting place would thus have immense prestige and legitimacy claims, which was particularly important in the wars of the successors. It seems that the Athenian orator Demades' dry commentary was ominously accurate with, quote, Alexander, dead? Impossible. The whole world would stink of his corpse. While not the ultimate reason for the First War of the Diadochoi, it certainly was a catalyst and an effective declaration of war when Ptolemy I managed to hijack the funeral carriage in Syria, which was on its way into Siwa under the supervision of Perdiccas. The body was routed from Syria to Memphis in Egypt before finding its ultimate resting place in the city of Alexandria, founded by her namesake. 
The whole process of preparing Alexander's body for the afterlife was a remarkably un-Macedonian-like or un-Greek-like tradition and style, and it was more in fitting with the more imperial role Alexander had adopted over the course of his career. The embalmers of Babylon, practicing in the traditional Egyptian manner by extracting the viscera and organs of the king before sealing him back up. Upon this, they coated his exterior with honey and loads of sweet herbs and fragrances, probably to prevent moisture from setting in and the smell of rotting flesh from attracting the hordes of flies and insects. They then placed him into a coffin lined with gold and accordingly dressed him up in the royal purple cloak and a diadem upon his brow. This is where Alexander would lie for the next few years while the funeral carriage, a distinctively Near Eastern practice, was being crafted. Diodorus Siculus goes into remarkable detail about the elaborate craftsmanship of the greater sarcophagus and royal carriage, probably taken from an earlier account by Hieronymus of Cardia, who was an eyewitness at the time. In effect, it was a scaled-down temple of Greek design, with a large statue depicting Nike, the goddess of victory, stationed on each of the four Ionian columns. Paintings and friezes depicting Alexander's great victories with elephants, Persian immortals, naval galleys, and himself upon a chariot. The structure oozed with divine symbolism, with vines wrapping around the columns, representing the god of wine Dionysius, who Alexander identified himself with while in India. The wheels themselves were of lions grasping spears in their mouths, and everything was covered in gold and silver. The structure was about 20 feet long and 13 feet wide, and required a team of 64 mules to pull the cart along. Alexander was never one for modesty, and his grand notion of a funeral carriage for the wealthiest king in the known world was perfectly matched. And as I stated before, this funeral carriage was routed from Syria to its final resting place in the city of Alexandria, the capital of Ptolemy I's Egyptian kingdom. A mausoleum was eventually crafted to house the body. This is where the second cultural development of the body of Alexander would come into full effect. Alexander's memory and image was a powerful tool in the propaganda and machinations of the early Hellenistic period. The presence of his mere equipment on a chair was enough to instill a sense of religious awe and divinely inspired purpose, a proverbial ghost on the throne, as author James Rom would put it. One of Alex's greatest controversies was his blurring of the human and the divine, his idea that of deeds allowing heroes to become immortal and join the gods a la Heracles or Achilles. What in effect happened was that his physical form was seemingly imbued with magical properties unto its own, turning his body into a talisman. There were multiple hero cults of Alexander, but Ptolemy had the greatest religious authority because of the possession of the talisman, and so the center of the Alexander cult was thus rooted in Alexandria, doubly amplified given that Alexander himself was the founder of the city. The body itself had retained much of its importance in the centuries following. It was something of a tradition for many Roman generals and emperors to pay a visit to the tomb. There is an anecdote that relates Augustus Caesar's visit in Alexandria to Alexander's body, whereupon he placed a garland of flowers and a golden crown upon it. When asked if he would also like to see the tombs of the Ptolemaic kings, Augustus scoffed with a remark, quote, I wish to see a king, not dead men. It wasn't always treated with the utmost respect since numerous figures had plundered some of the items inside to suit their own needs, like Cleopatra lifting some gold to thunder war against Augustus, and emperors like Caligula and Caracalla taking Alexander's personal items like his breastplate and cloak to soothe their own personal vanities. 
The tomb itself was remodeled several times, being replaced with a coffin of glass in the 2nd century BC. But we are at least certain by Caracalla's reign from 198 to 217 AD that the tomb still existed, or at least know of. The following crisis of the 3rd century and the subsequent late empire also show a disturbing lack of clarity regarding the whereabouts of Alexander's tomb. The 4th century in general was a tough time from Alexandria, ranging from riots, tsunamis, earthquakes, and fires. In approximately 400 AD, the Archbishop of Constantinople, John Christosom, wrote of his time in Alexandria, and he commented that his efforts in trying to visit the tomb of Alexander were made difficult by the fact that the locals themselves were unaware of the actual location. It could be said that at this point, we lose all functionally verifiable proof of its existence, or at least the knowledge of its existence. There were, however, reports of a tomb comprised of greenstone that was identified to be that of Alexander's. The Berber traveler Leo Africanus claimed to have visited Alexander's sarcophagus in the 16th century, and Napoleon's invasion of Egypt and the counteracting British invasion resulted in this very tomb ending up in the famed British Museum. Unfortunately for them, the eventual decipherment of Egyptian hieroglyphics later determined that the greenstone sarcophagus belonged to Egyptian pharaoh Nectanebo II, the last native pharaoh of Egypt, who was Alexander's predecessor. So, it begs the question, what happened? Well, scholars have been asking that question for centuries, and there have been a great number of excavation attempts to find the body. The Egyptian government recognizes over 140 official digs in Alexandria alone, but there are stories abound of amateur treasure hunters putting every last coin to digging holes all over the city in a mad pursuit. Like any historical mystery, there are boundless conspiracies and more unique interpretations on the whereabouts of the body. If we ever did find the body, it would probably be considered the greatest find of the 21st century thus far. So there is a degree of immense political value to recover it. Macedonians claim he's in Macedonia. Greeks claim he's in Greece. And there's allegations by archaeologist Leonis Vulatsi that the Egyptian and Greek governments blocked off attempts to excavate the Oracle of Siwa in the 1990s, possibly as a result of nationalistic tensions of Yugoslavia's breakup and the foundation of the Republic of Macedonia. One recent idea is that Alexander has been interred in Amphipolis in Greece by the Alexandrophile Emperor Caracalla in the late 2nd, early 3rd centuries AD, and work is currently being done as of 2014 to try and investigate further. Author Adam Chug, who proposes in his book The Lost Tomb of Alexander the Great, that Alexander's body is in fact in St. Mark's Basilica in Venice. His evidence is based around the bones of St. Mark, which were smuggled by Venetian sailors out of Alexandria in 628 after the conquest of Egypt by the Rashidun Caliphate. From there, they were transferred to Venice and interred as holy relics into the basilica's pillar. Chug argues that St. Mark, who died in the 390s AD, was actually cremated by pagans, and yet a mummified body shows up around the time period, and John Chrysostom would afterwards have trouble finding the corpse. Thus, we can infer that the body was actually Alexander's the entire time. But I think the most unique interpretation belongs to a Mr. Harry Hubbard, a resident of my home state of Illinois. He is of the belief that Cleopatra VII, otherwise known as THE Cleopatra, had fled Egypt along with a small company of Greeks as Augustus was attacking Egypt and she sailed her way to North America with the body of Alexander the Great and various treasures along with it. 
Eventually, it made its way up the Mississippi River into Marion County, Illinois. From then on is a tale of Byzantine complexity with rednecks, treasure hunters, and murder. Mr. Hobbit's website, www.illinoiscaves.com, shows dozens of images with purported artifacts, mostly drawings and inscriptions on pieces of slate. His explanation for the rest of the treasure was that a, quote, redneck, capitalized, mind you, had somehow determined the location of the cave entrance using coordinates from an old book written by a treasure hunter who contacted the original finder of the cavern. That redneck then stole billions of dollars worth of artifacts and flushed them into the black market. And that there's a great cover-up by the state of Illinois to prevent its implication in the grand-scale historical artifact smuggling ring. And the redneck murdered any potential witnesses who tried to bring them to justice. Well, I can't say I'm too convinced by this argument. Or this could actually be merely a ploy on my part to throw off any other treasure hunters and then drive myself south to Marion County. In all seriousness, though, I believe that Alexander's body is certainly somewhere in Egypt. Occam's razor suggests that the numerous catastrophes that befell Alexandria in the years leading up to John Christosome's inquiry probably forced the body to be hidden for safekeeping and was lost, or neglect and time simply took their toll as the centuries plowed on. In my opinion, it is not a matter of where, but when. If you're interested in the topic, please consider checking out Nicholas Saunders' work Alexander's Tomb, the 2,000-year exception to find the lost conqueror, which is the most practical work on the body of Alexander, its history, and a listing of all of its possible locations. Now, if you really wanted to go down the rabbit hole, please check out Mr. Hubbard's website at www.illinoiscaves.com for further information that will probably just melt your brain. As always, thank you all for listening, and join me next time on the next episode of the Hellenistic Age Podcast.